0: I've been asked on several occasions to do a summary message of our view of end times, and that is what, that's what has prompted this message in particular. I don't think I've ever done a message like this in 32 years of preaching. Obviously, we have a lot to cover to try to do a sweeping overview of the end times, so let's jump right in. Just one word of disclaimer To begin, because we're going to be covering so much, I will not be able to defend every point or define every point or delineate every point. Uh, You will have to pursue some of those things on your own to see, as Acts 17.11 says, the noble Bereans searched the word to see if those things were so, uh, because I just won't be able to buttress every point with force, you know, substantiating reasons, etc., etc., I believe that the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, commonly known as the rapture of the church. The word rapture comes out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so let's begin our time of study there in 1 Thessalonians. Turn with me, please, and also, obviously, we're going to be jumping around from passage to passage for this message, so just plan on doing that and turning with us right and left wherever we need to go to read and to comment. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. After Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, we have First and Second Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The church in Thessalonica was a church that knew about the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. In fact, Chapter 1, verse 10 says they were looking for it. They were anticipating it. But when some of the Christians in the church started dying off before it took place, confusion set in. Some thought that maybe those who died were going to miss it, which sort of gives us a clue of what Paul had taught them. Paul had taught them that this event could happen at any moment. It could take place at any moment. They assumed, well, what Paul is saying is it will happen soon. And when it didn't happen immediately, and they had loved ones who died, they thought, oh no, are they going to miss this great gathering together unto Jesus in the air? Therefore, Paul writes this section of the letter to straighten out the confusion. He says in verse 13 of chapter 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Basically, Paul says, listen, there's nothing to worry about, even though some have died. And he refers to them as those who have fallen asleep, or those who are asleep. Some people have jumped on that phrase to say that the Bible teaches soul sleep, but nothing could be further from the truth. When a Christian dies, his soul doesn't sleep. His body does. When a Christian dies, his soul goes into the presence of God. In Philippians one twenty three, Paul said that to depart, this body was to be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment a believer dies, his soul or spirit, the inner person, goes to be with Jesus Christ. The body goes to the grave and, be, and will be resurrected at the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. And that's why Paul words this the way he does when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you would sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In other words, when the resurrected Jesus comes to receive us in the air, he will bring with him the spirits of those believers who have already died. Now, how can he bring their spirits with them? Because that's where they are. They're already with him. If they've died, the soul, the spirit, the inner man has gone to be with Jesus. And here Paul says in verse 14, Jesus will bring them back so that when their bodies are resurrected, they can be reunited body, soul, and spirit. He says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, this is not a fairy tale. This is not wishful thinking. This is not make-believe. We're telling you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice that verse 16 says the Lord himself shall descend from heaven that's a reminder that we're not looking for a sign we're looking for a person We get so enamored with signs when we study about the end times, but our focus should be on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. His personal appearing to catch us away is our hope. And so Paul says in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Notice that at this event, we are caught up in the clouds. This passage is talking about the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, or commonly called the rapture. This is not talking about the second coming. At the second coming, we'll see a little later, we come to the earth. But at this event, we are caught up in the air to be with the Lord in and, and to go to the Father's house. The phrase here in verse 17, caught up, we here alive and remain shall be caught up, is the word raptura in Latin, from which we get our English word rapture. If you wonder where does the word rapture come from, this is where it comes from. And this is our blessed hope. Titus 2.13 says, We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now listen, if that's not the next event on God's prophetic calendar, then there's no reason to be looking for it. If the tribulation is next, and that is followed by the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, then we shouldn't be looking for the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. We should be looking for the tribulation. We should be looking for the Antichrist, not the Christ. But that's not what Scripture tells us to be looking for. We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, which is commonly called the rapture. We will be caught up to be with the Lord and we will go to the Father's house, John 14, for a time of evaluation known as the judgment seat of Christ. Paul talks about this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. The judgment seat of Christ is an evaluation of the believer's life to determine rewards or loss of rewards. So it's not a judgment in the typical sense of that word because it's not a judgment on sin, it's an evaluation for rewards. For some Christians, the judgment seat of Christ will be a day of wonderful rewards, but some Christians will not receive the full reward they could have received because they didn't order their priorities and live the kind of life they should have lived. So again, I believe the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the great gathering together under Jesus in the air. And once we are all gathered, we will go to the Father's house and we will have a time of evaluation known as the judgment seat or Bema seat of Christ. Sometime after that, and the reason why I say sometime after that is because it may not be immediately. Please hear that. But sometime after that, it could be immediately after it, or it could be weeks, months, years, an event will take place to kick off the seven year tribulation period, or better known as the time of Jacob's trouble. That event is mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. So go back into Hebrew Scripture to the book of Daniel chapter 9. Unfortunately, because of time, we have to jump into the middle of an amazing prophecy without being able to go through all of it. This prophecy at the end of chapter 9 consists of a 490-year time period. 483 years of the prophecy have already been fulfilled. Verse 27 deals with the final seven years. Verse 27 says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Most of our translations say one week. It's literally in Hebrew one seven. one seven. But in the middle of that seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now if we had time, we could demonstrate or prove that the term week here in this verse, W-E-E-K, is a reference to a week of years, not a week of days. So this is not talking about seven days. It's talking about seven years. The he in this verse is the coming prince of verse 26. This is none other than the Antichrist who will come out of the revived Roman Empire. This verse says that he will confirm a covenant... Or a treaty for one week. And again, how long is that? It is seven years. He will make a seven-year covenant. This is a prediction of the period that we commonly call the seven-year tribulation period. Now some may wonder about the last seven-year period being split from the first 483 years. But that's a very common practice in Old Testament prophecy. For example, Isaiah 9-6 says, one verse says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The first part of that prophecy speaks of the birth of Christ. Unto us a child is born. The last part of the prophecy speaks of his millennial reign as king. It says the government shall be upon his shoulders. There are at least 2,000 years between those events. So it's not uncommon for Old Testament prophecies to have a large time gap in them. And this could be illustrated with many more examples. One of the most powerful, again, if we had time, is Luke 4 to see how Jesus handled Scripture, how he read Scripture in the synagogue, stopped in the middle of a verse to say, this is fulfilled today. And he didn't read the rest of the verse because the rest of it wasn't fulfilled because there are 2,000 years at least between those two events in the same verse. Jesus' own hermeneutic, his own Interpretation of scripture verifies that. Besides, the New Testament tells us that the gap in this prophecy here in Daniel 9 is occupied by the church, which is a mystery that the Old Testament writers never saw. Ephesians 3 delineates that for us. So, the 70th week of Daniel 9:27 is the seven-year tribulation period yet to come. This verse tells us that at the beginning, or the event that kicks off the tribulation, now please hear this, especially if you happen to hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, please, please understand that the rapture of the church does not kick off the tribulation period. It could, it may, but that is not biblically the event that kicks off the final seven years. It is the signing of a covenant or a treaty with Israel. But after three and a half years... The treaty will be broken. This verse says he he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. It is safe to conclude that during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the Jews will be allowed to reinstitute the sacrificial system in the newly built temple. We know that that they are already prepared to build the temple and get things started right now. It's very likely that part of the seven-year covenant mentioned here in this verse will allow them to build the temple and begin their sacrifices again. But this verse tells us that in the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will put a stop to it, and he will commit the abomination of desolation. Jesus warned about this very event in Matthew 24. So turn over to Matthew chapter 24, the first book of the New Testament. (coughs) Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus says, Therefore, speaking to the Jewish people of his day, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. By the way, very key statement showing that the fulfillment of these words would not be to those who heard them, but to people who in the years ahead would read them. Let him who reads understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This corresponds exactly with our text in Daniel 9. Jesus is talking about the people of Israel here in this passage. We know that because he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Furthermore, he also says, pray that your flight may not be on the Sabbath. That would be completely irrelevant to most people around the world, so the Jewish people are clearly in view in this text. And Jesus warns them about the events that will unfold following the abomination of desolation, What is the abomination of desolation? This phrase originally referred to the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, so it is safe to conclude that the abomination of desolation has reference to some kind of future desecration of the future temple. All of that and much more is going to be a part of that time period that is commonly called the seven-year tribulation period. In chapters 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation, we have recorded many details of that time period. Obviously, we can't cover all 13 chapters, but it's important to note that those chapters revolve around three major sections of judgments. Chapter 6 deals with the seal judgments. Chapters 8 and 9 deal with the trumpet judgments. Chapter 16 deals with the bowl judgments. So let's turn over to Revelation chapter 6, and we'll read through some of these passages and make brief comments along the way. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. John says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer This begins the day of the Lord, or the great outpouring of the wrath of God. There are at least three proofs for this. Proof proof number one, it is Christ who breaks these seals. He is the source of the tragedies unleashed through the opening of the first four seals. Man has had his day. Now the Lord will have his day. This is the beginning of the day of the Lord. Proof number two, God is the one who determines the extent and effects of the famine of the third seal. These are not merely just human events at random. God is superintending every detail of what happens in these judgments. And proof number three, the first four seals involve death by sword or fo- or war, famine, pestilence or plague, and wild beasts. And God specifically states in Ezekiel 14.21 that those four things are instruments of his wrath so this is the beginning of the lamb's wrath this is the beginning of the day of the lord the great outpouring of the wrath of god the opening of the first seal is the release of the antichrist onto the world scene it's as if god is saying to the world you have rejected the truth so your judgment is a leader who hates the truth here you can have him Verse 3 says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see another horse fiery and red went out and was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, which by the way means that prior to this, there was peace on the earth because the Antichrist will bring a temporary peace. But now peace is taken from the earth and the people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. The turmoil begins as the world becomes dominated by war. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. We could read that and say, What does that mean? We don't know about these quarts of denarius and all that. Well, basically it is saying, Tremendous famine hits the earth. It is so severe that one meal of wheat or three meals of barley will cost an entire day's wage. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him. You see, death takes the body, Hades takes the soul. And power is given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death. And by the beasts of the earth. So when this seal is broken, one-fourth of the world's population will die. And it only gets worse. Down in verse 12, I look when he opened the sixth seal. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth. as fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. The sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains and said of the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. Things become so devastating at this point that the most valuable piece of real estate on planet earth will be a cave. Or a rock that you can hide under. And people will beg the mountains and rocks to crush them to escape the wrath of Christ. And that's only the seal judgments. In chapter 7, we see some of the Jews and Gentiles who will be redeemed during the tribulation. Then in chapter 8, we move into the second major section of judgments. It's the trumpet judgments. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Try to comprehend that. The seal judgments have been so severe that when the seventh seal is opened, revealing the seven trumpet judgments, there is stunned silence in heaven for half an hour. The inhabitants of heaven are speechless because it's been horrific already, and they realize it's only going to get worse. The seven trumpets contain seven trumpet judgments. If you look down in verse 7, the first angel sounded hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. They were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded something like a great mountain burning with fire. was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water, the name of the star is Wormwood. The third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. So a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine. And likewise, the night... And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Again, the idea is it's been horrendous. So whatever is to follow, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Chapter 9 continues. It says, the fifth angel sounded. I saw a star. Fallen from heaven to the earth, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. It's impossible to comprehend this or to describe it. Verse 7, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. Notice John's difficulty in describing this. He uses the word like. Sort of like contemporary language, you know. Young people are always saying, well, I like this. Like, well, this is what John is doing. He's trying to figure out how to describe this. It was, on their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. What is this? Well, this is a rock band of today, right? That's what it sounds like but it's not a rock band. It actually has reference to demons being released during the tribulation to torment men. And as we saw in verse 6, people will seek death and will not find it. This group probably consists of those who cohabited with women in Genesis 6 and the demons Jesus sent to the pit during his ministry here on the earth. Verses 13 through 19 describe the sixth trumpet. We won't read all those. I'll just summarize. When the sixth trumpet trumpet blows, an army sweeps across the earth, slaughtering one-third of humanity. And the amazing thing about all of this is what is said down in verses 20 and 21. It says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. By the way, that can be translated drugs. Very interesting in our day and age they won't repent of their sorceries their drugs their sexual immorality or their thefts what a picture of the hardness of man's sinful heart so the earth will be hit by the seal judgments but chapter 7 gives us a prelude says oh but people will be redeemed Jews and Gentiles then chapter 8 returns to the description of judgments Then we have a prelude or sort of an interlude again in verse chapters 10, 11, so forth, 12. And then over in chapter 16, there is the final set of judgments, the bold judgments. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 13 tells about two dominant men of the end times, the beast and the false prophet. And so a lot more details are given to us. But as I said, this section of Revelation clearly is outlined around and revolves around these three sets of Judgments. So in chapter 16, there is a reference to the bowl judgments. And when you picture a bowl, it's probably not sort of like a mixing bowl, but these large saucers that were in the temple. And so if they had something in it, a liquid, you would just slosh it out. It's so the picture is that God's judgment would just be not sort of poured like you're pouring a bowl, but just sloshed out on planet Earth. Verse 1 of chapter 16, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go! Go! Pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. It became blood as of a, dead, of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. They became blood. Now, at this point, you might say, This seems a little, you know, over the top. Is this really necessary? Well, anticipating that, notice the response. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord. Don't you dare assume that God is unrighteous for doing this. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. This is fully deserved. It's not excessive. It's not over the top. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun in power, it was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. Notice, you would think, you would think that all of this would bring people to repentance. But look at the rest of the verse. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. You see why it takes the sovereign, efficacious work of God in a man's heart to cause him to repent. Man will not repent on his own. His heart is too hard. Verse 10 says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. His kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. And then we have the sixth angel uh, description in verses 12 and following. Then the seventh one, verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell in great Babylon and was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent." It's about 100 pounds, maybe as much as 120 pounds. You know what hail can do. We occasionally around here have hail the size of a golf ball, and you know the damage it causes, or rarely the size of a baseball. Can you imagine 80, 90, 100 pound, 120 pound hailstones? These are some of the devastating things that will take place during the future tribulation period. You say, why is the Lord going to do all of this to to people and to planet Earth? Because Satan is the prince and the power of the air, and he has ruined planet Earth, and God's going to take it back. He's going to judge it and take it back and give it to the rightful heir, his son, Jesus Christ. Now, immediately following this time, immediately following this time, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. How do we know that it will be immediately? Because that is exactly what Jesus said. He said this in Matthew 24, 29, and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Jesus comes back to this earth immediately after the seven-year tribulation period. Now keep in mind, this is a different event than the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air or the rapture. At that event, we're caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But this event involves Jesus coming to the earth and us coming back with him as we'll see in just a moment. Chapter 19 describes it that way. Skip over a few chapters to chapter 19, verse 1. John says, after these things. After these things. What things? Well, after the seven-year tribulation period that is described in chapters 6 through 18. After the seven seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. After the destruction of religious Babylon in chapter 17. And after the destruction of commercial Babylon in 18. That's what John is referring to by the phrase, after these things. Down in verse 11, after these things, he says, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice that at his second coming, Jesus is coming back to judge and make war with those who have rejected him. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That speaks of his penetrating judgment. On his head were many crowns. That speaks of his right to rule. That's why he's coming back. He's coming back to rule planet Earth. If that's not what he's doing, why come back? If he's just going to end everything and take everybody to heaven and hell, he could do it from heaven. But he's coming back to rule planet Earth. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Beloved, that's us. If, you'll, if you are a believer, if you're saved, you'll be a part of this army. Now, you remember, we're already with the Lord because we've been caught up together with Him. But now we're coming back with Him. Verse 15 says, Out of His mouth goes a sharp sword that with it He should strike the nations. Why is He going to do that? And He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And beloved, that is a terrifying description. A wine press usually had two layers to it. There was an upper vat and a lower vat. In the upper vat, the grapes were trodden and the juice would be squeezed out into the lower vat. And what this is depicting is the fact that God's wrath against sin is so great that people who reject Christ and embrace the Antichrist will, in a sense, be thrown in a judgment vat and Jesus will trample them and totally crush them. It's not how you usually think of Jesus, is it? But that's what is being described. Verse 16. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, the great supper of God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gather together. Now, notice how intense their rebellion will be. They are gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. By this point, at the end of the tribulation, they will have heard the message enough from the believers here on planet earth that Jesus is coming back to reign, and he's coming back to Israel. So they will gather in Israel, and if you can imagine it, if you can imagine this idiocy, they will gather there to try to stop Jesus from coming back. Thinking they can prevent him from coming to rule and reign. They're coming for a battle, a war. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. Is there any battle? No. Verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. All the previous judgments in the book of Revelation were carried out by angels but this one is carried out by Jesus Himself. The king comes to rule the earth. All of his enemies have been destroyed except one Satan himself. And since Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom, the final rebel has to be dealt with. That takes us right into chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. A great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So during the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, Satan will be bound in the abyss or the pit. Understand, this is not hell. This is not the lake of fire. This is the place where some demons are temporarily bound and where Satan will be bound for the millennial kingdom. Verse 4, I saw thrones. They sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. According to verse 6, this is the first. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. The martyred tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints will all be resurrected to enter the kingdom. Of course... At the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, the New Testament saints were already resurrected. And, the, and all of that is called the first resurrection. According to 1 Corinthians 15 23, key verse, the first resurrection, which is the good one, it has phases. The, the, the wording that Paul uses, each in his own order. Christ was the first in the first resurrection, then the church at the rapture, then the martyr tribulation saints, and the Old Testament saints at the second coming. All of that is part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection is a singular event. All the unrighteous are resurrected at once. So verse six is talking about those involved in the first resurrection before the thousand year kingdom. Verse 7 says, now when the thousand years have expired. Let me just pause for a second. Hopefully you already saw this and, and noticed it. But six times in seven verses, God says a thousand years. And beloved, if language means anything, then a thousand means a thousand. I mean, if God said it one time, we might think, he, you know, he's saying, well, uh, it's a long period of time. A th- oh, you know, you can just use an expression. It's like a thousand years, a long time. But when he says a thousand six times in seven verses, he means one thousand. A thousand means a thousand. And when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. That's where Jesus will reign from. They're going to surround Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So after the 1,000-year kingdom reign of Christ, Satan will be loosed again temporarily. And he will gather together all the rebels for one last attempt to thwart God's program. Now maybe you're wondering, where do these rebels come from? Well, those who trust Christ during the tribulation and live will enter the kingdom with their natural bodies, Jews and Gentiles. They will have children, their children will have children, and so on for 1,000 years. Some of the children, many of the children born of the saints will be rebellious. But they will conform externally to Christ's reign because... Scripture emphasizes he will rule with a rod of iron. He will not allow any external rebellion. But when Satan is released from the pit, he will organize all those who have only conformed externally in the kingdom like Judas did. And Satan will organize revolt. And the revolt will be snuffed out, verse 9 says. And then verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I'm going to emphasize something again. This says forever and ever. Hell will be forever and ever. And I would also emphasize this point. If you you don't think 1,000 years means 1,000 years, when God says it six times, how can you believe forever and ever means forever and ever? Maybe it doesn't mean forever and ever. Maybe it just means temporarily. If we're going to be that loose with language and not take 1,000 years seriously, why take forever and ever seriously? But we should take both seriously because God says what he wants to say and we need to hear what he says. So Satan is cast into hell, but he isn't sent there to run hell. He's the primary victim of hell, the primary inmate of hell. He will be tormented night and day forever and ever. After Satan is cast into the lake of fire, the second resurrection will take place. This involves all the unrighteous of all the ages. Verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There's no place found for them. They can't get away. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing. How are they standing if they're dead? Because they've been resurrected. All the lost of all the ages, standing before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. These are the unsaved of all the ages. And please understand something. Everyone who stands at the great white throne will be cast into the lake of fire. This is not a judgment to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. No one at the great white throne goes to heaven. The reason they're judged according to their works is because their works will prove they were never born of God, and their works will determine the degree of punishment they will experience. The Lord is a righteous judge. He has kept the record of all the deeds, of all the unsaved, of all the ages, and his judgment will be exact. And once all the lost of all the ages have been dealt with, Satan and his demons have been dealt with, that will be followed by eternity. So in chapters 21 and 22, John describes our eternal home that will be composed of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Please understand that. Sometimes we say, oh, I can't wait for heaven in eternity, as if heaven's going to be all there is. That's not all there is. Heaven or eternity will consist of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Verse 1 of 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And beloved, that is what eternity is all about. Right there, verse 3. God fully manifesting himself to us and dwelling with us in unrestricted glory. That's what eternity is all about. God's presence, his his unveiled glory is the primary attribute of heaven. And verse 4 tells us God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away the former things have passed away because we will live a totally new kind of existence in a new place called the new heaven and the new earth and the new jerusalem are you going to be there you're invited you say how do you know i'm invited well look at chapter 22 we close with verse 17 the spirit and the bride say come and let whom him who hears say come here it is And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, there you are. There you are. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You're invited. Do you thirst? Do you thirst for eternal life? Do you thirst to have your sins forgiven? Do you thirst to have the salvation of God? Do you thirst to be with Christ forever? Come. Come to Him. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Call out to the Lord and take the water of life and be in this glorious place. Let's pray together. Father, when we read about the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, we do long to be there. Thank you, Father, that you have been willing to tell us the future. You were not obligated to do so. But thank you that in your word, in so many places, you have chosen to reveal the future to us. And it is for the purpose of not merely for us to make charts and graphs and all of those types of things that we tend to do but it's for the purpose of fixing our eyes and our focus on eternity. And father in closing we pray for anyone here among us who's not headed for the new heaven the new earth and the new Jerusalem but rather is headed for the great white throne judgment. May they hear verse 17 of Revelation 22. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. May your spirit stir their hearts. May they call out to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I thirst. My soul is thirsty for forgiveness. My soul is thirsty for new life. My soul is thirsty to be right with you, God. And may they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and find that their thirst can be satisfied in him. We pray these things in his majestic and mighty name. Amen.